listening to The Middle, the show about the Australia-China connection. We're bringing greater balance and broad expertise to all aspects of the Australia-China relationship. Welcome to The Middle, the show about China and Australia and their friends. We are coming to you from 2SER Studios in the heart of Sydney on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation. My name is Peter Frey, the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition. And joining me today is my co-presenter and my esteemed colleague from the University of Technology, Sydney, Walling Sun. Hello, Walling. How are you? Pretty good, Peter. Hey, Peter. Can you tell us why we decide to call this show The well, Middle? Well, thank you for asking, Wanang. Um, there are four important reasons. Firstly, the obvious. Australia is increasingly caught in the middle between the US and China. Secondly, China is, of course, the middle kingdom. Thirdly, many people get stuck in the middle of the debate about China and Australia, and we are here to help them, hopefully. And fourthly, we wish to see if there isn't a productive middle path in this often hot and divisive debate. Well, maybe there is uh, another reason I would um, suggest if we can become a little bit philosophical. How about Confucius' idea of the golden middle, uh, or Aristotle's idea of the uh, doctrine of the golden mean? Well, Wanning, I'm always learning new things from you. I really am. There you it's go. great to be with you. Um, today's episode is, in fact, all about the US, China, and, Aust- and Australia, that, that tricky tripartite relationship. We're exploring this complicated and de- delicate three-way and uh, wanting this has been quite a lot of fuss recently about it, hasn't well, it? Well, absolutely. I think we've just gone through a very tumultuous time in terms of uh, China, uh, US and the Australian relationships. Uh, first, uh, the US and China nearly had a uh, c- uh, uh, clash at the South China Sea. And then Mike uh, Pence made that uh, very famous and controversial speech at, at the Hudson Institute. So, and, and that was considered to be a declaration of the Second Cold War. Mm. So it's clear the U.S. is leaning on Australia to pledge its allegiance. Mm. And, and back home we have elections looming uh, and the coalition uh, government clearly needs and wants and desires the Chinese vote. The Prime Minister recently paid a visit to Hearstville in, in the federal Sydney seat of banks, uh, pledging a commitment to foster Sino, Sino-Australian relations. And in the meantime, the Prime Minister is believed to time his announcement to follow the US and, and then the move to, of the embassy to Jerusalem. The Australian has published an analysis echoing support for Pence, while China Daily, that's China state media, uh, has issued warnings to Australia and Japan not to side with the United States. So this is a perfect time for this discussion. Absolutely. And uh, the, we have in the studio today two most qualified people to talk about these issues. Today we have Associate Professor Jing Dongyuan from the Center for International Security Studies at Sydney University and Professor John King of Sydney University. So Jin Dong and John, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Thank and you, Wanning. Could you also tell us, uh, uh, Jin Dong first, why are you interested in this subject area? Well, I follow regional security, of course, and also great power relations. Uh, so you cannot think of a more consequential relationship than the U.S.-China relationship. Mm, John? And and John, what what brings you to the China 
I became interested um, after coming home, after a very long time uh, away in Europe, after coming home, I became interested in the China question because of, um, I declare, a very passionate commitment to uh, this multiculturalism experiment which is happening here. And we have uh, one and a quarter million uh, Chinese-Australian citizens. Um, uh, their voices are not often heard publicly. And, of course, they find themselves now entangled in this tension between uh, the so-called rise of China yeah. and um, this American bellicosity, let's say. Mm. Okay, so to some specifics, Jingdong. Uh, the Australian says the, Pence, the Mike Pence speech sets, quote, sets out a new approach and adopts a more confrontational policy towards China. So what does that mean for Australia? And should Australia hedge or wedge, to quote the title of one of your many fine books? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think uh, Australia will be uh, wise uh, uh, for Australia to hedge uh, for the moment because I think there are a number of important uh, facts uh, that we, we need to be aware of. Uh, number one is... China is very, very important for Australia uh, in its bottom line. Mm -hmm. That is uh, economic prosperity, employment, uh, and so this is very, very important. Number two, Australia is situated in the Indo-Pacific, mm -hmm. where China is rising, is becoming a dominant power. Right? So that fact must be taken into consideration. Mm -hmm. Thirdly, uh, which is where the, the challenge is, uh, is that Australia has a solid and over seven decades, even longer, alliance relationship with the United States. Australia has always depended on a great power for its security because by itself it just mm. is not capable or, you know, mm. both man, in terms of manpower and economic small, terms. Too far away. Yeah. yeah, so it's very, very difficult. Mm. So how to balance its economic interest and the reality that Australia is part of Asia or Indo-Pacific, uh, where China is emerging as a great power mm. uh, on the one hand, and its solidarity and alliance relationship with the U.S., you know, it's a very, very tough challenge for Canberra. Well, John, um, I read uh, um, Richard McGregor who, from the Lois Institute who has written an article uh, yesterday saying that uh, Pence wants to have a divorce with, um, from China. And so when U.S. and China get a divorce, um, what should um, Australia do? Well, I think we should look behind the words, uh, Wanning, because um, there are various interpretations of this Pence speech at mm -hmm. the Hudson Institute. You mentioned it before. Some say it is equivalent to Churchill's Iron Curtain speech, 1946. I happen to think that that um, analogy is overdrawn, mm -hmm. partly because Pence was playing to an American audience. Mm -hmm. I also think it's overdrawn <clears throat> because it overestimates uh, the power of the United States mm -hmm. to decide things. And one of the ideas I've been trying to develop and to put out publicly is that we are witnessing um, the decline of the American empire. Mm -hmm. There are all kinds of signs of that. Mm -hmm. And so 
this um, this speech, uh, rather than being a trumpet blast of strength, might well be a kind of bleat and a, and a cry of uh, weakness. So perhaps, John, for different reasons, uh, when the China Daily says that Australia and uh, the US and its allies shouldn't be drawn into this sort of Cold War paranoia, um, in fact, the Cold War paranoia is a kind of American fiction in this case. Yes, and I think uh, Ding Dong is right in this respect that uh, that some hedging um, in Australian foreign policy is very important. I also think that uh, this talk of a new Cold War underestimates the 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 pragmatism option. Let's call it mm. you know that Australia as a medium-sized power, wealthy, multicultural a laboratory experiment in the Asia-Pacific region, and so on, you know, has room for maneuver um, in matters of higher education, in matters of agriculture, uh, and uh, investment, and so on. And being clever uh, in, in, as it were, uh, playing off the Americans and the Chinese is something that's in pretty short supply at the moment in politics, but mm. it is, I think, um, a future option. Well, just before we go to Jingdong, I mean, being clever, is that an option for us right now? We don't, there, as you say, there's not a lot of evidence that we can play off the two. Oh, it's not an oxymoron. Oh, That's for oh. sure. <laughs> <laughs> but what I mean is that um, there is a sort of stalemate at the moment, yes. I think, right. in, in official politics, and there is a flip-flopping. Um, there are moments when Australian politicians speak exactly like uh, Mike Pence. And there are other moments, you mentioned it in your introduction, Peter, where um, there's a kind of pragmatism and like we welcome uh, our alliance with China and so on. So um, what is needed, I think, is um, a reimagining of our relationship. And um, it's Stephen Fitzgerald, I think. Uh, who may oh. have been on this program already, mm. uh, who I think is a leading exponent of that pragmatic vision that requires cleverness. So obviously, there is a lot of contradiction and tension here between, uh, you know, in the, in the government's policies, foreign policies. So we've talked about Australia being caught in the middle, and you said that it's very difficult for Australia. But are there any concrete things that Australia can do to negotiate this space? Uh, well, this is a very, a very good uh, question. Also, certainly a challenge for the for the government. Uh, I think uh, Prime Minister Morrison's uh, visit during speech at in, in Hurstville uh, is part of this uh, slow and gradual so-called reset uh, in Australia-China relations after. Uh, the previous, I think, 18 months of uh, very, uh, you know, growing hostility and animosity between China uh, and Australia because of this foreign interference and uh, and all the rest. Uh, so, on the one hand, this is a, a welcome uh, sort of a, uh, interlude uh, in this uh, otherwise uh, very strange uh, relationship. And certainly Morrison recognized the Chinese community's contribution to Australian de development over a hundred years, uh, even longer. And he also recognized that the importance of China uh, in terms of economic mm -hmm. development uh, and even, you know, for regional uh, stability. 
but the more challenge, the, the important challenge is how you can implement policies mm. that will reflect this or reinforce this so-called uh, reset. Of course, I think there are a number of things uh, Canberra can do and think in the past, Australian government has actually very successfully uh, managed this very delicate sort of a trilateral mm. uh, relationship. Uh, so I think the number one thing, the, the, the first and foremost uh, uh, you know, fact is that the uh, Australia should always approach uh, either its relationship with the U.S. or China from the fundamental interest of Australia's peace and prosperity. Mm -hmm. So Australia national interest should the set the premise of any you know specific policy. Is that put Australia first? <clears throat> yeah, Australia interest yeah. should be the anchor yeah. because sometimes when you you know as John mentioned that the uh, the politician very you know strong language mm. and statement is as if they are catering or pampering the Americans and as if the alliance is so important that Australia has to from time to time demonstrate mm. uh, even though we have this growing economic tie with China we're still very loyal mm. <clears throat> to our old friends in the United States Okay, so yeah. I think that's not the right way mm. to uh, conduct uh, foreign policy. It should be what are Australia's na uh, national interests. Certainly, is safety of Australian citizens, uh, security of its borders, uh, and then economic prosperity. Mm. So if you take these three facts in uh, into any consideration, and then you will find that uh, Australia-U.S. alliance is only one factor, although very important factor, in this whole, you know, overall consideration and, and, and so mm. forth. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, so that would be the basis to derive and, and develop uh, pragmatic uh, yeah, approaches. Okay. We'll, yeah, okay. We'll, we'll flip, flip over to John now. John, just before you, I know you're going to and respond to that too, but and build on that. But um, also, let's push forward a little bit. So we, we do have a federal election looming, as we mentioned. One, do you think um, the, this issue, this debate, is going to feature? You know, is it a part of our political narrative in a kind of populist way now? Is it becoming so? Secondly, what does that kind of post-election? I mean, again, we're getting into crystal ball gazing territory here, but post-election, this pragmatic, you know, building on what Jing Hong just said, you know, um, what does that look like? I have no doubt that. Um uh, that this issue of Australia, China, U.S., and our and the fate of our region is going to um, it's going to smolder on, and uh, that's because uh, this is not such an orthodox way of talking, but that's because I think we have uh, a region that is now uh, under the influence increasingly of two empires. Mm -mm. And one of them is showing signs of weakening, the American, and the rise of China. It's not a popular word to use, de guo, uh, empire, to describe what is happening to the expansion it's of It's not China. a popular word in, in China. And, it, and the word empire, interestingly, yeah. is not popular in the United States either. <laughs> um, and yet Australia is entangled in those dynamics. That's uh, one reason why I think this issue will not go away and whichever government we have in the early uh, uh, year, next year, in 2019, will have to deal with this. The second thing is that I think um, I'm less 
less sympathetic to old-fashioned talk of national interests. I mean, I, I, I think that in the region, what we have is a kaleidoscope of, of different institutions and dynamics and industries and movements and so on, of people and uh, of capital. So that um, Australia's uh, uh, role in the region has to, I think, uh, by definition, uh, involve a dynamic rebalancing mm. of um, the rise of this new Chinese empire and a struggling American uh, empire. And so it means that, you know, cleverness in selected fields, higher education policy, uh, renewable energy, but it also has to include, Jing Dong did, didn't mention this, um, uh, strategies for bringing greater accountability to cross-border institutions. Mm. We played an important role in the AIIB, uh, and it was actually um, Prime Minister Abbott uh, and diplomats who uh, managed to win uh, an accountability integrity unit inside that bank. Mm. Another issue that's developing is whether we want actively to support um, what might become a Chinese application to enter the comprehensive Trans-Pacific Partnership. Mm. The difficulty there is that the recent um, trade deal signed between Mexico and Canada and the United States prohibits Mexico and Canada from entering into partnerships uh, with um, powers that are not market economies. So Australia is going to have to negotiate that, and shying away from it um, is not an option. Mm. You are listening to The Middle, the show that's dedicated to exploring the relationship between China and Australia. And today we're lucky enough to have both professors from uh, Sydney University, Associate Professor Jin Dong Yuan and Professor John King. Um, yes, over to you, Peter. Do you agree then with the moves by this government, this federal government, to limit the influence or potential influence of uh, the Chinese company Huawei? Uh, I think, uh, well, it has its uh, legitimate uh, security concerns. Right. Uh, but the way I think it manages uh, Huawei is not the way you should, uh, you know, manage because it sends a wrong signal to prospective foreign invest investors. Mm. And Australia is a country that is always uh, in, in need of foreign uh, capitals. Even in the case of Huawei, if you look at the UK, I mean, the UK and Sweden, I mean, these are the countries uh, which have allowed Huawei to operate for a very, very long time. There, there are security protocols you can establish so mm. you can separate, uh, you know, certainly protect your, uh, you know, critical infrastructure or security, but also still inviting capital and technology and to have the sort of Australia-China cooperation that would be for the benefit of uh, all of us. Yeah. Just to link up with uh, uh, Jing Dong's remarks, uh, it's important to remember that if you look at DFAT figures of foreign direct investment mm. in Australia for 2017, U.S. Um, direct investment is around about 950 billion Australian dollars. Chinese investment is around 65 billion. That runs counter to what many journalists uh, are saying, uh, and and certainly the talk of uh, a China takeover. It's not true. 
So you've been listening to The Middle with me, Peter Frey, and Walling Sun. Our guest today, esteemed strategic and defense analyst, uh, Professor Jing Dong Wan from the uh, Center for International Security Studies at Sydney University, and political science extraordinaire. Can I call you that? I know, Professor John Keane of Sydney University. Um, we could talk for hours about this relationship, the relationship between the US, Australia, and China. But unfortunately, wanting, uh, we've only got time for maybe one, yeah. possibly two quick yeah. questions. I do want to ask Jin Dong uh, one more question about def- uh, spending on defense. Obviously, you know, China spent a lot of money on defense. Um, but we really don't know much about the thinking behind China's defense policy. So, first of all, I'd like you to say a little bit about China's thinking behind its own defense uh, spending. Secondly, um, could you say also a little bit about Australia's thinking behind Australia's uh, uh, defense spending, particularly in the new context of intensified tension, if you like, between the U.S. and China? Right. Uh in terms of uh, China's uh, thinking behind its uh, defense spending, that has been going on for the last uh, four decades. And uh, basically, you know, on the one hand, you can think of defense modernization as part of the overall economic growth and uh, uh, economic development and the wealth creation. Uh, on the other hand, because of China is now so integrated. Uh, into the global economy. Now you have millions of Chinese uh, people working overseas. You have uh, billions of dollars of uh, Chinese, uh, you know, capitals invested in many, you know, foreign countries. Uh, so the new thinking on the defense uh, spending is to strengthen the capabilities so that China can be in a position to protect its. Uh, citizens is foreign economic you know interest in in overseas so all of these uh, require the uh, sufficient but still reasonable uh, input into uh, the defense expenditure so of course people talk about the double digit uh, defense spending over the last 30 30 40 years uh, but people have failed to recognize is that as a percentage of uh, GDP, uh, defense spending has been declining as a percentage. Now it's mm. about under 2%, now not even... The GDP know. has been growing so fast. Yeah, GDP yeah. going so fast. Yeah. And then you have to think about, uh, because China is entering into uh, you know, older populations and there are healthcare, education, so there are a lot of public spending demands. So defense spending could only be a you know, increase at a measurable uh, pace. Mm. Uh, so, and then to meet growing, ever-growing sort of emissions uh, uh, that China has. Now, with regard to Australia's uh, expenditure, defense expenditure, as I mentioned earlier, is, you know, primarily defending its sort of a maritime or territorial uh, uh, interest, but also it's sort of in a supportive role in a, in a broader U.S. light military alliance system in the Indo-Pacific, right? So it's an early warning surveillance, uh, but also in in the cyber uh, area, electronic uh, warfare and communication. So in where Australia has a 
particular niche mm -hmm. and to support uh, this overall uh, strategy. John, last question for you then. You recently wrote this article called One World, Two Empires. Is that right? Yes. Is US, China US conflict inevitable? Now, I'm curious why you refer to these uh, two countries as empires, and do you see the way that, that that's how it was conducted in the history? Uh, an empire is technically a large state whose economic, um, governmental, cultural, and military power extends way beyond its borders, regardless of the niceties of talk of of. Uh, of sovereignty. And we know from this great book by John Darwin called After Tamerlane that we've had many modern empires, um, all of them, uh, with a couple of exceptions, uh, failed very quickly. Uh, they typically failed, um, the ones that failed, failed because they overstretched. Um, they became too big for their own boots. And what I tried to say, picking up on that uh, idea, um, which is very much a part of what I think is needed, this dynamic rebalancing of our relation with the United States and China, what I tried uh, to say in this um, uh, short uh, piece is that actually um, it never happened before that two empires were global in reach and were entangled. Uh, the first genuinely global empire was not the British. Um, it was actually the American, and it was born of victory in World War II, um, and it had a competitor, the Soviet Union. Mm. But they were not entangled, economically not entangled, mm. militarily not entangled. Uh, that was the Cold War. Um, what we now have with the collapse of the Soviet Union and Russia lurking around, it's true, and causing trouble and making uh, moves and in Syria and so on. Though, yeah. Yes, um, uh, poisoning, poisoning uh, its opponents. Person, yeah. Is we have this new dynamic in which, as each day passes, I think China counts as an empire. Um, when you speak about this subject inside China, um, the word diguo is a bad word. It refers to the past to the throwing off of um, colonization and, and empire. And there is sometimes talk of a big power. We're becoming a big power, a dark war, um, but generally an embarrassment about this word. Um, lots of talk of Tianxia, uh, you know, the world will live under one heaven. Mm. Um, there is talk of intercultural communication. There's a dodging of the PowerPoint that this, when you look at um, the mega projects and you look at the, the, the role of CGTN and you look mm. at um, the first bailing out of Chinese citizens in Libya and so on, you see something very big going on. Mm. And that's what I mean by empire. Mm. The question, I think, for Australia, for Australian mm. politics and citizens is what kind of empire will this be? Mm. Uh, I think it will be partly determined by the behavior of the United States. I don't think that the Thucydides trap, as it's called, 
uh, is a, an iron law. The Thucydides, Thucydides, hard to say so early in the morning, the Thucydides trap is one where a rising power, it's said, always causes military conflict and mm. it ends in war. It's empirically not uh, uh, the case. Um, and it's still an open matter. But what kind of empire will China be, I think, is uh, a great question for us. And I watch it as each day passes. I collect materials. <laughs> I find it's, uh, it's a kaleidoscope of trends that mm. uh, don't add up. There are, China is a good, decent rule of law player in many uh, cross-border institutions. Fatra, mm -hmm. they follow the rule mm. of law. Um, in Xinjiang um, is violence and, and the suppression of Muslims. Um, in Dubrovnik, to complete the picture and to show how contradictory it is, um, in Croatia, they're not only building this big bridge, thanks to European funding. Um, it's not a loan, a big loan debt arrangement, but they're also um, doing joint patrols with mm. police yeah, in, in the streets of Dubrovnik. Mm. I mean, this is, these are symptoms of something very big going on. Mm. And it's not clear yet um, what kind of empire it will be. We okay. hope it's cautious and it has, may I say, like the British Empire, it had um, enough pluralism inside it mm -hmm. to be stable so that it allows certain things to happen that are quite at odds with what goes on inside China. This okay. is all, all I right. think. So on that question, that very big question, which could be as another three or four shows, I suspect, what sort of empire will China be? We're going to have to wrap it up um, uh, for this week. Um, I'd like to thank very, very much for our guests, uh, Jin Dong Guan coming and John King for being Pleasure. such wonderful guests. Thank you very much, both of you. Yeah. And until next time, it's goodbye from me, Peter Frey, and Walling Sun, my wonderful co-presenter, and a big thanks to our producer, Amy Rowe. Thanks very much for listening.